25 years ago, I started dating Lindsay Diane Harrison, and, uh, you know, it, it got serious. It got serious. It's been serious ever since, let's be honest. <laughs> so, um, you know, it got, it got to the point where I need, it was time to meet her parents, right? And we were at school in L.A., and they're back in Atlanta, so I actually went back to Atlanta with Lindsay, I think on a spring break or something, to meet the family. And inevitably, I end up asking the question, so what does your dad do for a living? Because like, I got to know what I'm dealing with here. Like, what, what am I walking into, right? And she says, oh, he works for the IRS. And when I laughed, ha, ha, ha. Oh, not joking. Uh-oh. And um, no, no, it's okay. He's a special agent for the U.S. Treasury, and he investigates. Oh, great, awesome. That makes it better. That's awesome, Yeah. <laughs> You know, what's funny is that I've told a lot of people, I love my father-in-law. He's outstanding. He's a great human being. Uh, I'm a huge fan. But when I tell people what he does, inevitably, their facial expression is one of shock, right? And a little bit of disgust, like, ugh. And especially when they find out he's a Christian. I didn't know Christians could work at the IRS. Like, you know, because this is, and it's, it's, an, it's an odd thing, but it turns out people who want to take your money and give it to the government aren't popular, it's not a popular place to work, which is so bizarre. That's not unique to our culture, though. Some things never change, right? Tax collectors have never been popular. Like, when is that like, oh, yeah, I really want my son to grow up, and I want him to go and be a tax collector. Now, I tease about my father-in-law, the IRS. But the fact is that when we talk about that, we recognize there's a little bit of social stigma that goes with working for tax collection in general. Now, what's really interesting about the Gospel of Matthew is that Matthew himself worked for the IRS. He was a tax collector. And in fact, he tells this particular part of the story, it's the bigger story of Jesus and how he took on flesh and how he's teaching and healing and ultimately how he'll go to the cross for us, right? It's that bigger story. But in that bigger story, he tells us this little story, this moment when Matthew himself came to follow Jesus. And it was not without controversy. This story is very important because it shows us it shows us something crucial about the character of God's kingdom and the nature of the gospel. And it wasn't just important 2000 years ago, it's absolutely central for our understanding of what God is doing today. So let's pay attention here now to Matthew chapter 9 and let's see what benefit we can have from learning about the fact that Matthew used to work for the IRS, okay? So we're in Matthew chapter 9 starting in verse 9. And just remember that last week we have Jesus returning back to the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. And then, of course, he uh, has healed the, the man who was a paralytic whose friends brought him to Jesus. And he's talked about his authority to forgive sins. So we're still in that general phase, those early days of Jesus' ministry. Looking at verse 9, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now let's just pause right here, okay? Let me explain to you a little bit of the tax structure of the Roman Empire. This will bless you, I promise, eventually. So just work with me, okay? There were basically two levels of tax collection uh, in the uh, outer reaches of the Roman Empire. The first was called a publicani, and this person was normally not a local. This was somebody from another uh, region or town or even maybe from Rome itself. And this person was there living amongst people that were not their own, 
and it was their job to collect X amount of taxes for the government every year. They had freedom to collect extra taxes, and that's why they all drove Maseratis, okay, and had helicopters, all right? So that's, that's how this group worked. They obviously were not popular. They weren't from there, and they were extorting money out of people for their own wealth, so not a popular position. But as they executed their authority for the Roman Empire, they would employ a second level. And that second level would have been locals, people from the local community who would agree to participate in tax collection for this publicani and for the ultimate glory of Rome. Needless to say, there was a special category of disdain for these locals. And that is very likely the position that Matthew held. He was not the main dude, but he was working for this publicani, and he was going around enforcing the tax policy that this person had uh, instituted on behalf of Rome, and then, of course, for their own financial benefit. As he did so, you can imagine that Matthew was not popular with his own people. He was basically a turncoat, a traitor in their minds. He was someone who was participating in taking advantage of the community for the betterment of some foreigner and certainly ultimately for the sake of Rome. So Jesus is going around. He's still in the area of Capernaum. He's healing. He's teaching. He's casting out demons. He's proclaiming his authority to forgive sins. And then he comes to the tax booth, right? The tax office, okay? And here he sees Matthew. And, well, we don't get the rest of the dialogue. We just get the command where Jesus says in verse 9, right, he said to him, follow me. Matthew, he says, you're with me. Follow me. That calling was not simply the calling to go and to have dinner with Jesus. That is the calling to become a student of Jesus. It was a calling to, the word we use today is discipleship, a calling to discipleship, to become a learner, Matthew, come and learn from me. You have to know that this is what rabbis did. In the first century, rabbis created a pool of students that would literally follow them around, hear their teaching, you know, learn to grow in their, their teaching, their philosophy, and then teach others. That's what they did. And so here Jesus, as a teacher of the first century, is calling students. But he's calling them with an authority that is much greater than that of a rabbi. He commands Matthew, come follow me, which would have meant Matthew would have eventually left his vocation and gone to follow Jesus full time. What's interesting is that Matthew doesn't dwell on other details in verse 9. He says, well, Jesus said, follow me. And he get up, he got up, excuse me, he got up and followed him. It was like, okay, guess I'm done today. Like, he just got up and he left. And he left the tax office, the tax booth in there, and he follows Jesus. And no doubt what Matthew intends for us to understand here is that he followed him as a disciple. As a learner, right? What's interesting about this explanation is Matthew no doubt includes this in his gospel because he wants us to see that there's a pattern here. The pattern of Jesus calling people to follow him and people following him. And the fact is that we learn something very important about the nature of being a disciple from Matthew. Being a disciple of Jesus means following him. Shocking, I know. What revolutionary But the fact is, it really is that simple. Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, and he got up and he followed him. Being a disciple of Jesus means following him. Now, we can flesh this out a little bit because we know the rest of the Gospel of Matthew and we know the historical context. Following Jesus meant listening to his teaching. There was a response of faith by Matthew in Jesus. As Jesus taught, Matthew believed, right? 
He listened to his teaching. So following Jesus here includes listening to his teaching, that, that aspect of faith. But it also involved obeying his commands. Even the call to follow is a command. He says, follow me. And Matthew says, okay. And he gets up and he follows him. There's a simplicity to that as Jesus functions, not just as an important religious teacher, but indeed as God in the flesh. And he exercises that authority over nature. He exercises that authority over demons. He exercises that authority by forgiving sins. And here he calls Matthew and he says, you, you're with me. And so Matthew responds and he follows, obeying his commands. Now, we can see in our own calling to be disciples of Jesus these same two attributes. We listen to Jesus, we learn from his word, and we obey Jesus. Now, inevitably, obeying Jesus means making changes, right? There would be maybe no uh, greater change on, on the face of it in the first century than going from tax collection to being a religious student, okay? You're walking out of that secular, kind of money-focused world right into, okay, now I'm following this, this teacher around and pursuing, uh, you know, the Lord, things of the Lord. Well, that would have been a radical change. But the fact is, for all of us, for anyone who follows Jesus, we must be ready to make changes as we listen to his teaching and obey his commands. I like the example of Matthew here because it's basically like my whole life is on the table here, Lord. What do you want from me? Right? What do you want? Now, of course, becoming a disciple of Jesus doesn't always mean we have to give up our vocation, but sometimes it does. And so it just kind of brings up that that nagging issue that we all struggle with. The issue of, okay, if, if Jesus is Lord and he's calling us to follow him, what are we not willing to put on the table, right? Lord, I'll give you everything, I mean, except for Friday nights, obviously, because those are mine, right? I mean, Lord, I'm willing to, I'm willing to follow you. I, you know, I'm not going to mention you at work or at school. That would be weird. But you know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm willing to follow you in my free time. Of course, I'll give you that. Lord, I'm willing to submit to your authority, I mean, not with, like, my money and stuff, but, like, you know, in other areas, I'm willing to submit to your, you know. I mean, the fact is we all will struggle with putting everything on the table. But, brothers and sisters, being a disciple of Jesus means following Jesus. It means listening to him and obeying him, which definitely means making changes. Matthew's change was radical. What about you? Have you changed since you started following Jesus? There are kind of two categories here. For some of us, we weren't raised in a Christian environment, and maybe we gave in to temptation uh, a little bit more readily over the course of our lives. And so following Jesus does mean radical changes in our daily life. And praise God for that. God gets glory for that, right? We make those changes. For others of us, maybe we did grow up in more of a Christian context, and maybe our giving in to temptation wasn't as dramatic or as uh, controversial. But the fact is, when we, when we come to follow Jesus— we're committing to follow him no matter what. And that means that we're different than we were or certainly different than we could have been because we followed Christ. What about you this morning? Are you different than you were? Are you different than you could have been because of following Christ? Young people especially, I think there's an opportunity this morning for you to consider this important question. Are you going to listen to Jesus and obey him? When Jesus says, follow me, are you going to follow him? If you learn this lesson early as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, it will save you from much headache in this life to follow Jesus as your Lord. We're talking here about moral transformation, where we are listening 
to God in the flesh. Teach us and lead us. The question is, how have you changed? Matthew changed a lot. It was obvious. What about for you? Now, the unpopularity of tax collectors, it does beg the question here, how low will Jesus go in calling disciples, right? I mean, he's kind of scraping the bottom of the social barrel here. Well, it's going to get worse. Look at verse 10. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. If we just pause there, verse 10 in the middle, right? While, while he was reclining at the table in the house. Okay, so first century dining habits, okay? When you went to first century, in the first century Israel for a dinner party and you ate, you would not sit in a chair, you would recline on the ground. You would eat kind of in this reclining posture. So this was, you're going to spend hours there. You're going to be enjoying the hospitality of your host. Here he goes to Matthew's house because Matthew has become his follower. So he goes over to Matthew's house. Matthew invites people over. Who did Matthew know? He knew other bad people. Other people that worked at the IRS. Okay? These are not good people. So he invites his friends over. Tax collectors is the word in verse 10. And sinners. People who were known not to be law keepers. They were known not to be righteous. But nonetheless, they were Matthew's circle. And so he invites these people over, and there Jesus is in this house reclining and eating with them. That was a violation of the law, according to first century Jewish interpretation. He should not have been eating in that house. There was no guarantee the food had been prepared according to the, the requirements of the Old Testament. And so Jesus should not have been associating with those people. It was absolutely so risky. There was no way he should have been in there. If he cared at all about what people thought of him, he wouldn't be seen associating with tax collectors and sinners, let alone reclining at a table with tax collectors and sinners. But nonetheless, there is Jesus spending time with Matthew and all of his associates there. This causes... Well, it causes controversy amongst the religious authorities in the community, all right? So in Capernaum there, you would have had some members of the Pharisees who would have been responsible for interpreting the law, leading the synagogue, telling people what is right and what is wrong in the sight of God. And so here, the Pharisees see what's going on. It's a small town, Capernaum, all right? You can, you can visit it today. It's well excavated. It wasn't a big place. So they saw what was going on. It obviously caused a huge commotion. And notice what happens in verse 11 there. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That wasn't a question. That was a rebuke. Right? They, weren't, they didn't really want to know. They're saying, your teacher is doing something wrong. He's not keeping the law. He, he is not doing what is good and moral and right. He is spending time with wicked people with turncoats on the community who don't love God, obviously, by virtue of their choices. He's, he's spending time with sinners. And he's not just passing them on the road and talking to them. He's actually having intimate fellowship with them over the course of a dinner. When they ask, why does your teacher do that? They're not asking. They are rebuking. What is Jesus doing? Well, I'll tell you what he was doing. He was filling his kingdom with rescued sinners. That's what Jesus was doing. I mean, the fact is, the reason why Jesus was spending time with tax collectors and sinners was to call them to repentance and faith, which is exactly what he did. And when they believed and they followed him, they became part of his family. They became kingdom citizens. And so Jesus was populating his kingdom with rescued sinners. 
Jesus' kingdom is filled with rescued sinners. You might even say, and only filled with rescued sinners. These are the citizens of his kingdom. This is what he's doing. And so, yes, it was very controversial to the time, but it brings to light an important contrast. And it's clear as day when we look at the Pharisees and their response to Jesus. There's Jesus who, out of love and concern and care, is seeking to engage and rescue sinners, right? He's interacting with them. He's calling them to follow them. We'll talk more about what that means in just a minute, but that's exactly what he was doing. He's engaging them, again, populating his kingdom with sinners who have been rescued from their sin. And then there are the Pharisees, who they view entrance into God's kingdom and continuing in God's kingdom as a matter of performance, These people haven't earned the right to be in God's kingdom. These people haven't earned the right of God's grace and his favor. These people don't deserve to have a rabbi, a good rabbi, dining with them. They don't deserve access to God. They haven't earned it yet. Now, maybe if they repented and got their act together, eventually over time, maybe we could see a change and they could go from the category of tax collector and sinner into the category of righteous, but they haven't done anything yet. They haven't warranted that move. And so here, there's a fundamental conflict between the gospel and between law-keeping, a works orientation, this self-earned righteousness. And here, Jesus is offering grace to people who are known not to be law-keepers. They're known to be sinners, and Jesus is welcoming them into his kingdom. It was controversial. It was shocking. It was crazy talk in first-century Jewish context. That's what was going on. And the Pharisees were saying, this is not okay. This is not okay that he is in there eating with these people. The fact is, Jesus hasn't stopped doing this. I mean, to this day, he's filling his kingdom with rescued sinners. That's why I was thinking about it. We're sitting here singing, you know, come ye sinners poor and needy, right? And I was thinking about, you know, it's such an odd thing for a bunch of people to get together and say, right? Let alone sing. Here we are, the worst, right? But you got to sing the rest of the song. We come to Jesus. Or Lord, have mercy. Yes, we confess our sin, that we're sinners, but then we, we sing of the, the gracious work of Jesus on our behalf and his faithfulness. And there's hope and mercy and forgiveness there because here we are, a bunch of tax collectors and sinners who have been welcomed into his kingdom. Not because we earned it, but because Jesus is gracious. Now, we might be tempted to think a little bit like the Pharisees today, so we have to be careful of that. There's a lot of danger in self-righteousness. There's a lot of danger in a law-keeping mentality, right? Some of the dangers are we can look with pride at the lost, thinking we're above them. Thinking, oh, well, you know, the people that haven't come to Jesus, they're the worst. No, we're the worst. We're the absolute worst. We don't look with pride at others. We might think we've earned our place. And if we think we've earned our place, we will be tempted perhaps to ignore sin, to hide our sin, or to justify our sin. Because if you're welcomed into the kingdom of God by virtue of your performance, and then you don't perform well, you've got to hide that. You've got to hide it. You can't admit it. You know, you can't, you can't show it, right? Another danger of self-righteousness is Well, when we sin or fail, it becomes catastrophic. Because if you earn your way in and then you fail, you feel like you've earned your way out. Of course, that idea of hypocrisy will just eat you alive. 
Another danger of self-righteousness or a law-keeping mentality is that we will misrepresent the gospel. And people misrepresent the Bible all the time. Oh, yeah, the message of the Bible is clean yourself up and then God will forgive you. That's not the message. If it's clean yourself up and God will forgive you, Matthew doesn't belong in there and neither do any of his friends. And if the message is clean yourself up and then God will forgive you, brothers and sisters, there wouldn't be room for you or me. We drastically underestimate our sinfulness, don't we? So we have to be careful about this pharisaical mentality, this, this law-keeping self-righteousness, right, this, this focus. These guys came at Jesus, and, and they, they were like, he is spending time with the most scandalous people we can think of. Now, it's probably worth asking the question, who are the scandalous people in our culture? And yes, you're probably sitting near one, so don't make a big deal about it, all right? Well, there they are, right? Now, these are people who are low on the social ladder. In our context, it might be a drug addict or a sex offender or maybe an immigrant, a refugee, something like that. And our default setting culturally is to avoid people that we're uncomfortable around, right? We don't want to be around these people. But the fact is, the fact is, Jesus is populating his kingdom with sinners. They're just people. And they're people who need a savior. Thinking specifically about the issue of immigrants and refugees, the fact is sometimes God brings refugees to a new place on earth by virtue of economic hardship and warfare to make them not citizens of that nation, but to make them citizens of his nation. Sometimes God brings people to a new place to bring them to the gospel. And sometimes we slip back into pharisaical thinking and we just can't be bothered to spend time with those people, whoever they might be for you. And I think it is fair to acknowledge that it's, it's subjective, that we all might struggle with somebody a little different. But you just got to remember that those Pharisees were so offended at Jesus just spending time with a tax collector and sinner. And that's you and me. And so when, when we struggle with someone... Maybe we need to go back to Matthew 9 and just remember, you know what, there's an opportunity here for me to to love a fellow human being and perhaps to introduce them to God's glorious grace. These Pharisees were on the hunt, though. I mean, they they heard what was going on. They went and saw it with their own eyes. They questioned the disciples, questioned slash rebuke. They're on the case. And they thought they knew the Old Testament, right? These guys are the experts in the Old Testament, But watch what happens. Jesus challenges their understanding of the Old Testament law. Watch verse 12. Now when he heard this, of course the disciples had reported back to Jesus, right? So now when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. So if you just pause there, okay, Jesus, in his initial response, he uses the analogy of a doctor, right? He's like, you don't go to the doctor if you're feeling fine. There's nothing wrong with you. Who needs a doctor? Sick people need a doctor. And Jesus is like, yeah, these people are obviously sick. Of course, the Pharisees were sick. They just were in denial. They didn't understand. But Jesus is saying, yeah, well, we know these people are sick, but I've come to to heal. So this is where I'm going to be. I'm going to be with needy people. You shouldn't be surprised to find me there. But he presses in about the issue of how you interpret the Old Testament. Watch what he does in verse 13. He then challenges these Pharisees. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Well, you just got to love those mic drop moments for Jesus, don't you? I mean, here in confronting these Pharisees, he tells them, go back to school, kids. Go and learn what this means. Learn what? And then he quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. You've got to know, Hosea is is like uh, a pile driver of a prophet. I mean, he just, he confronts Israel's sin in bold ways as a prophet. There's no hiding in Hosea. He calls Israel out for their sin. But as he does so, along the way, he offers these beautiful nuggets of God's grace. And it's interesting, in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, the issue there is hypocrisy. Specifically, note the line from verse 6. I desire mercy... Or loving kindness or grace, talk about it. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, what do you mean you don't desire sacrifice? It's in the law. You're supposed to make the sacrifices. And God says, hold on, you've missed the point. It's not about law keeping. It's not about rule following. It's not about righteous performance in your deeds. Because the problem was there were people who were checking all the right boxes They were offering the right sacrifices, okay? They were going to the right church. They were dressing with the right attire. They were singing the right songs. They were checking all the boxes, but they didn't actually love God or love others. That is, the loving kindness of God had not impacted them and changed their life. They weren't responding to others with grace and mercy. They were just about religiously going through the motions, And again, they were hypocrites, and Hosea confronts them, and the Lord speaks to the prophet Hosea, and it's God saying, I don't want your money. I don't want your church membership, your attendance. What I want, what I want is your heart. I want you to get that the gospel is all about grace. That's what it's about. It's not about performance. It's about grace. That's Hosea, the prophet Hosea in the 8th century B.C., making that argument. Jesus says, hey, Pharisees, go back to school. Get out your journal of Hosea, right? Your journal articles on the book of Hosea and and read, study up on Hosea 6, verse 6. Because, Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. Now, some of us, right, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know Isaiah, you know Romans. There are none righteous. No, not one. There are precisely zero righteous people. So Jesus is not saying there are a bunch of people out there that don't need my help, and I'm not really here for them. I'm just here for these losers, right? And yeah, yeah tax collectors, right? There they are, right? I'm, I'm here for them. No, Jesus is saying there, there's nobody righteous. I came to rescue sinners. And by the way, when you realize you're one, jump on in. The water's fine. Because the gospel is all about grace. He's, he's radically challenging their fundamental understanding of what did it mean to approach God. It's not approaching God by virtue of performance and law-keeping. It's approaching God simply because God says, I offer you grace. I offer you grace. And that grace is transformative. It's meant to change us. We sang it earlier in this line uh, in, in Come Ye Sinners, but the line is, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. If your attitude is, I'm going to wait to come to Jesus until I've, I've cleaned up my act, the song's right. You'll never come. You're never going to get to the place where you're like, okay, I've sorted out all my sin. Now I can come to God and he'll accept me. That's not gospel. That's work. That's religious work. It's a burden. It's a never-ending treadmill that you can't get off, right? 
keep the law, keep the law, perform, perform, do, do, do. And there's Jesus having dinner with all these sinners. Who does he think he is? Well, he's the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh for us. And he's with sinners because the gospel is all about grace. There's so much here for us to learn. The first thing is, of course, we're all sick. We're all sick. There are, there are none who are righteous. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul, verses 1 through 3, he talks about how those who are Christians, before they were believers, that they were sinners. And he says, he says and, and among them, we all were. He uses the word all. All of us. None of us can claim, oh, I never really struggle with sin. Not my problem, right? We're all sick. We're all sick. And there are a couple of ways we can struggle with that, with that truth, okay? The first is kind of more like the pharisaical side, where we think that actually we're not sick, we're just fine. And if you're here this morning and you're, you're struggling on that end of the spectrum, you need to just hear Jesus, right, in the Gospel of Matthew, saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Gospel's all about grace. And so it's okay for you to acknowledge that you're sick because he's a doctor, <laughs> right? He came for the sick. So you, there's freedom in acknowledging. I can acknowledge how I failed. I can acknowledge my sinfulness before the Lord. Not because it's not a big deal, but precisely because Jesus is the cure. And so there's freedom there in that acknowledgement. We can say we're sick. But then there's another side of struggle. I think this is really more the tax collector and sinner side. Or this is where you, you are aware of your sickness. You're aware of your sinfulness. I mean, people may be reminding you of it, Right? Self-righteous people might be looking down at you and you're feeling that, that guilt. Maybe you're feeling in, inward guilt, of course, before God because of your sin. But in that, in that sin, what's happened is instead of turning to the Lord, you've just turned away from the Lord. And you've thought, oh, I'm not worthy and he doesn't love me and I haven't performed well enough yet. And, and you just kind of keep going down into this, this dark cave and down deeper and darker into that, into that cavern. And you're just kind of so far from the light because you're overcome with the guilt. But hear the words of Jesus here. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I am populating my kingdom with sinners. Matthew didn't have to perform to be welcomed as Jesus' disciple. These people didn't have to pass a test to go to dinner with Jesus and to, and to hear his message of grace. The gospel is all about grace. And if you ever wonder, I'm too far gone, right? He'll never accept me. You've missed the gospel. Because the fact is, Jesus has come for all of us. When you feel like you're too far gone, just remember, it's about grace. The gospel is about grace. It's about mercy. It's about God's loving kindness. It's not about my performance. It's not about my inherent righteousness or my performed righteousness. It's about his grace, which then should motivate us to turn from that darkness and to come to Jesus. This is not saying pass a test and then you can come and be my disciple. He's not saying, well, let's put you on a probationary period and then you can, if you do well and you perform well, then you can become my disciple. He just says, I came for sinners. Are you one? Then I came for you. The gospel is all about grace. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you. Listen to Jesus. Observe his behavior. And consider the fact that 
what's preventing you from coming to Christ may be pride and arrogance, a denial of your condition, or it may be despair and discouragement, right? You're overly focusing on your condition. But what we need to hear from Christ this morning is that his gospel is about grace. And his kingdom citizens are welcomed before they are transformed. It's by his grace that they are transformed. If you've never trusted Christ, maybe those are your barriers. And maybe this morning is the opportunity for you to confess your sin. Either to acknowledge because you've been too proud, or to confess your sin and to give it to the Lord and be released from that burden. But either way, the gospel is all about grace. That's the message. Now, we need to circle back on that quote from Hosea 6, 6, because there's more to it. It's not just that the gospel is all about grace. It also does something to us. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Yes, God shows us mercy, but that means that he transforms us to be merciful people, to be gracious people. What could be less gracious than walking by a dinner party and going, what a bunch of losers (laughs) in there? You ever do that at at a restaurant at Chipotle? I do that all the time. That's not okay. Look at that table. There's no Jesus on that table. I can tell you that right now, right? It's ridiculous. But Jesus, via Hosea, is calling out this hypocrisy and this ridiculousness, which for those who, who follow Jesus, Matthew, right, and others, now there's a transformation that happens. Again, it's not to get into the kingdom, but this is what kingdom people are now like. You've been welcomed by grace, and that means now, because of God's grace, you now are are given the capacity to be gracious with others, to be merciful with others, to show God's loving kindness to others. Of course, we see Jesus has come to save sinners, but that also means that our mission as his followers is to do the same, to deliver the gospel to sinners, not out of, out of pride and self-righteousness, but out of love and care, just as he did, which means We really have to understand what the church is. So here we are, a bunch of rescued sinners. Praise the Lord. Awesome. Let's go, right? So we scatter out of here all week. And the message, right, the the idea, the mission is not, listen, you got to go out in the big bad world, just hide all week until we can come back together, right? Insulate yourself from the world, right? I mean, that's, that's that's your best tactic so that you don't get infected by those bad people. No, no, that's not the mission, The mission is to infiltrate the world, meaning we get to know people at our schools, at our places of work, at our communities, and we guess what? We just love them. You just have dinner with them. You just show them God's grace. You introduce them to this glorious kingdom and our glorious Savior because the gospel is all about grace. And so it follows that, that people who have trusted in Christ are now gracious people. We've been transformed Again, Matthew was changed. Now, obviously, as we spend time in the world, you need to be, a mi- be mindful and be aware of where you're tempted. So you don't put yourself in a situation where you're going to fail and, and be tempted in, in ways that are, are going to kind of derail you, of course. But what we're not going to do is pretend like, oh, well, I can't be around these people because I'm too holy. Jesus blows that thinking out of the water because here he is, the holiest one, and he's pursuing tax collectors and sinners. You realize that God has, has put you in situations where you have relationships with people who will never set foot in a church and they'll never talk to a pastor, but they'll talk to you? You have an opportunity to introduce them to Christ and to the gospel. It's all about grace. That's our mission. Our message, and this is where this passage gets, I think, really misinterpreted by our culture. Our message and what Jesus is saying 
to the tax collectors and sinners is not, hey, you guys are just okay the way you are. Keep up the good work. In Luke, the, this, the Luke's version of this event, he adds the line that at the very end, for I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. I came to call, call the sinners to what? To repentance. So Jesus is not saying, hey, everybody's just okay. Back off. No, he's saying, I've come to call you out of your sinful life to repentance, to repent of your sin, and to trust me. I have called you to transformation. Again, not transformation to get in, but transformation by God's grace, because he's welcomed you in. So there's this recognition that, yes, our message to the world is not, hey, you're okay just the way you are. Our message to the world is you're broken, and I know exactly what that that looks like because I'm broken as well. But did you know that there's a great doctor that I'm happy to recommend? Because the gospel is all about grace. Again, you'll have the opportunity to share that message with people who desperately need to hear it. And God has sent us to deliver it. Not in self-righteousness and arrogance and pride and humility and love. These Pharisees had it wrong, didn't they? Well, the gospel does something to you. It has to do something to you. And if it hasn't, you need to ask the question, Am I just offering sacrifices? Am I just going through the religious motions? Or am I showing God's grace and God's mercy to others? This is the gospel. Jesus rescuing sinners. How does it work? Well, we know the rest of the story. By the end of the gospel of Matthew, there is Jesus going to the cross for tax collectors and sinners, paying for their sins. You know what? He went to the cross for self-righteous Pharisees as well. So that all who will repent and turn to him can be forgiven, can be welcomed in. Because it's about grace. But as we trust in him, we are changed. And even that very change God uses to advance his kingdom cause. Don't underestimate what God can do through you as you are gracious to others. I want to encourage you with a story of the way God did that in ages past and then recent history. Back in the late 1800s, as a part of really a fervor of missionary activity uh, from this country, there were many who sought to take the gospel to the Arabian Peninsula, Middle East, far away, tough place. And they went as medical missionaries. These were folks who were doctors, and they went and they were able to head to Bahrain, and they actually set up a Christian hospital in Bahrain. There wasn't uh, any semblance of modern health care in the Arabian Arabian Peninsula at that point, and so this was kind of like a big deal that they were able to do that. And they went in the late 1800s. They established a reputation for providing excellent care there. One of those who who ended up going eventually were doctors Pat and Marion Kennedy. And so they went as medical missionaries to to Bahrain, and they they were there and they were providing medical care to these folks in the Middle East who needed good medical care. And what happened was a little just a, a little bit away from there, there was an area called the Trucial States. Now, that's known today as the United Arab Emirates. It was a very loose affiliation of, of uh, Arabic tribes at the time. And so uh, these, these tribes, they had access to no health care at all. And the statistics are, these are the legitimate statistics, the, the possibility of death at birth was 50%. So half of all babies born in those tribes died at birth. Uh, mothers died one-third of the time. So if you were a mother about to give birth, there was a 33% chance that you were going to die giving birth to that child. And so one of the sheikhs, um, he had heard about these Christians who had come to Bahrain and had a hospital there. And so the sheikh was willing to ask for help. So he said, hey, would you Christians be willing to come down here and provide health care for us? So 
Pat and Mary and Kennedy were like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll go. We'll do it. And so they went from Bahrain down to, uh, to the, the UAE, the area of what is known as today as Dubai, Dubai. And they're there. And they set up, it was literally a hut, like a mud hut with thatched roof. Like that was it. And that became the new maternal care facility for this particular tribe, right? And so then in this hut, they're helping these, these Arab women give birth to these babies. And so it turns out, the future sheikhs were born in that hut, right? Now, fast forward 50 years, throw in a, a few skyscrapers, right? Uh, a couple of, uh, you know, dramatic uh, transformations in their economy and, and sprinkle in some oil out in the Gulf. And now you've got this mega super city, right? But 10 years ago, on the site of that hut, there was dedicated a brand new Christian hospital. It cost hundreds of millions of dollars. The money was donated by these families, the families, the leading families from this tribe. And this is a true story. So they're, they're thinking about the, the ribbon-cutting event for the Christian hospital, right? And they're like, oh, these families that have given this money, they're prominent Muslim families, you know, the Sheikh's family. Like, they're not going to want to come and even, they probably don't even want to be known that they gave money to this, that kind of a deal. And so the, the people running the event were preparing for the fact that these families were not going to come to the ribbon-cutting. They were trying to help them save face, and it was no big deal or whatever, but this is what my friend uh, Scott Zeller said, uh, who spent uh, a fair chunk of his life ministering in that part of the world. He said, when the time came to cut the ribbon on the new building, the ruling family was there. In response to the donation, one of the Kennedy's children said to the sheikh, we can never repay you for the hospital. Right? The sheikh responded, no, we can never repay you. What your family did for us, we can never repay what did they do? Well, they were just gracious. And they cared enough to go to a hard place, do something that other people wouldn't do, and love people that nobody else would love. <laughs> they lived the gospel. And I think in that example, we see exactly what God has called us to. We don't know how he'll use it, but he's called us not to self-righteousness, not to, not to arrogance and pride, but he's called us to humble love and service. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. And the fact is, the gospel, it's not about law-keeping. It's not about performance. The gospel is about grace. Don't underestimate how God will use you as you are gracious to others. Would you pray with me? We'll ask God to continue his work in our lives. Lord, we thank you so much for this passage out of Matthew 9. Lord, we pray that you would help us to follow you. Lord Jesus, help us to listen to your words and obey your commands. Lord, we pray that we would be different people because we've believed. And we know that's what happens with the gospel, Lord, that you change us. And so we thank you for that. But Lord, especially we note the temptation to self-righteousness and to arrogance and to pride, to judging others, Lord, to thinking that we're better than anyone else. And Lord, we know that's not true. We are sick. We are sinners. We are needy. But Lord Jesus, you came for us. We praise you that you came to call the sinners. We thank you that you came and died for our sins and rose from the dead and that by faith in you, we can be forgiven. Lord, we pray that you would help us to reflect that grace to others. Lord, protect us from falling into a good works orientation where we're simply seeking to, to check off boxes rather than genuinely love you and love others. Lord, protect us from hypocrisy. And Lord, please use our lives, use graciousness and humility and love in our lives 
to attract others to you, to show them the glory of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to work our way into your favor because we know we never could. We thank you that the gospel is all about grace. Lord, encourage us by your grace and help us to live in light of it. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.